Good day, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome. So glad you're all here. Good afternoon. It is for Rob in England, looks like. He says, is it going to be a two-hour study of Romans 9? <laughs> nope. Uh, in fact, today might be a little shorter than normal. However, we're going to be in Romans 9, 10, and 11 for a while. <laughs> so glad you're along for it. Hey, a couple of uh, program notes. Uh, Saturday, remember, is our next Cross to Crown Partners uh, Zoom discussion. So for those of you who are partners, you should have received an email last weekend with the Zoom link. And if you would like to jump in on that, there's still time. Go to crosstocrown.org, click on the tab that says CTC Partners, become a partner, and uh, we'll send you an invitation to that on Saturday at 1030 Mountain Time, I believe is what I said. Second thing I want to remind you is that tomorrow, Friday, for our Fridays with the fellas, uh, my son Gabe is going to join me and I'm uh, looking forward to having him on. And if there's uh, something in particular that you would love to hear us talk about together, put a comment here. We'll uh, take a look at it. We've got some ideas, but uh, we're open and this might be a regular thing. We'll see how it goes. All right. So with that, let's look at Romans chapter nine. Okay. You ready? You buckled up? So the first thing is, this is one of the most disputed sections in all the New Testament, Romans 9 through 11. It is a battleground for Calvinism versus Arminianism and for dispensationalism versus covenant theology. And you will not be surprised to hear me say so much of the debate is not because of exegesis, it's because of systematic theology and theological presumptions and, and presuppositions that are brought to the text. I've been telling you all along in Romans, this is not a letter of theology, not, not in a systematic theology sense. Those who say the first four or five chapters are justification and six through eight are sanctification and nine through 11 are or the doctrine of election, or God's sovereignty, or something like that. They're not reading the letter. They're reading theology books, and then looking for verses that support their theological conclusions. That is not the point of these sections. So we're going to stay in the text, and I will warn you ahead of time. You are going to want to ask all kinds of questions as we go that take us out of the text. And I'm not going there. Edgar, I'm looking at you, buddy. He's a recovering uh, systematician. We're not going there. We're going to stay in the text because Paul has a concern for making sure his audience understands what is accurate and what is not accurate regarding Israel. This is timely, isn't it? With the awful things going on in the Middle East right now and the war in Israel or Gaza, uh, we are seeing a lot of very poor theologians uh, talk about eschatology and uh, that this is going to usher in the tribulation, the Antichrist. None of that is true. None of that is biblical. And people, again, are reading theologians rather than the scripture to get to those conclusions. 
Mighty Monkey says, Isaiah. Well, yes, if the text takes us back to an Old Testament text, we will certainly look at those texts, but we're not going into theology. Okay, so the key to unlocking Romans 9 through 11, the key, the essential, uh, the starting point is 9.6, which in the literal standard version says, and it is not possible that the word of God has failed. Now that's, here's where the uh, LSV does not get it right. The uh, NAS is much better, much closer to the original. Let me pull that up here. It is not as though the word of God has failed. Okay, so just let that sink in for a minute. It is not as though the word of God has failed. That is Paul recognizing that someone might think, in view of all that he's been saying, that God's word has failed. And, and the word here would be God's promise, his word that we read about in Isaiah and Ezekiel, and elsewhere in the Old Testament, especially the prophets, that his word, his promise, his, his, uh, his declarations of what is true of Israel, that it's all failed. Well, what has led us to this place where he would have to address whether or not God has gone back on his word? Well, think about where we've been. Paul has been saying all along, being a Jew puts you in no better position than being a Gentile. If you've been with us, you've seen that over and over again. In chapter 2, for instance, having the law does nothing for the Jew if he breaks the law. And of course, the Jews all broke the law. They are guilty before God, and they are subject to his wrath and punishment. And in fact, he even throws out the, the uh, sort of hypothetical, if a Gentile kept the law, he'd be a better Jew than a Jew. Having physical circumcision, circumcision of the flesh, means nothing. And he even addresses this a little bit in chapter 3, if you remember at the beginning, he said, then what benefit is the Jew? What, what, what's the benefit of being circumcised if it doesn't put you in a better situation before God? And he gives a quick answer, and then he goes right to his explanation that the Jews are just as sinful as the Gentile. And chapter 3 was getting toward the fact that all are under sin, Jews and Gentiles. And the only way to be declared righteous for a sinner is believing the gospel. Chapter 4, what is Abraham, our father according to the flesh? Right? He's the, he's the first Jew. Not really, but he, he's certainly the father of the Jews in their mind. He's the first one. What did he find according to the flesh? Nothing. Because he was declared righteous before circumcision. And then chapters 5, 6, 7, and 8 that we've been looking at. In Adam, all are counted as sinners, and we're going to die because of that. We're going to be condemned to death. 
resurrection is held out for those who believe the gospel, who are empowered by his spirit to overcome sin. And what does he say about those who are brought by the spirit? They are sons of God. They are Jew or Gentile. If you are putting to death the deeds of the body by the spirit, then you are God's son. And if you're his son, you're his heir and a co-heir with Christ. And you have this great hope of glory and, and resurrection life and continuous life, eternal life. If you have the spirit, which means you're his son. So if a Jew is in the audience listening as as the elder is reading this letter from Paul to the Roman congregation, the Jew in the background is saying, well, well, if all of that's true and you become a son of God and an heir of all of his promises through faith by the power of the Holy Spirit, then what's the point of the law and all the promises he made to Israel? Has God's word failed? You read the Old Testament prophets, you go back and and read the Old Covenant scriptures starting in Exodus, and it sure sounds like God is making very specific and long-lasting, if not eternal, promises to the nation of Israel. And if Israel is rejected and Gentiles are accepted, then it sure seems like all those promises mean nothing, that God has failed to keep his promise. Do you feel the weight of that? That is a reasonable question from a genuine Jew who is starting to put this all together and realizing what does this mean then? I go back and I read those texts of the Old Testament and it sure sounds like he's making very specific promises to a specific people. And Paul says here, chapter 9, verse 6, the key verse to this whole section is, it is not as though God's word has failed. Now, some are going to jump to the conclusion then that of course his promise has not failed. In the future, he is going to bring about all of the promises that he made to Israel and apply them literally to the nation of Israel. That is not what Paul says. We don't see that anywhere. In fact, just the opposite. So if you're coming from a perspective that is holding out hope for a future Jewish kingdom or a future uh, fulfillment of promises made to Israel, that they're going to be given to Israel, ethnic Israel, geopolitical Israel, you're not reading the Bible. Let me see if I can prove it to you. All right. So I want to I point out a couple of verses that are, we're going to find uh, in the upcoming chapters just to see kind of how this goes, because Paul is going to work through this section asking rhetorical questions, and then commenting on them. So chapter 9, verse 14, Paul says, What then will we say 
unrighteousness is not with God or is with God. Sorry, I put the not in there. I should have. What then shall we say or will we say? Unrighteousness is with God? Is God unrighteous? That's the implication, right? If God doesn't fulfill his promise to Israel as given, it seems like he's unrighteous. Is that true? Paul will address that. Chapter 9, verse 30. What then will we say? That nations, which can be translated Gentiles, nations who are not pursuing righteousness, attained to righteousness and righteousness that is of faith. And Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at a law of righteousness. So here in 930, he's saying nations, non-Jewish nations, the, the Gentiles attained to, they, they got to the place of righteousness, whereas Israel missed it. Chapter 10, brothers, and now he's referring to brothers, not the Jews, but his brother Christians, brothers, the pleasure indeed of my heart and my supplication that is to God for Israel is for salvation. He says, the, the greatest joy that could come to my heart is if Israel would attain to salvation. What's the implication? They haven't. They are not in a state of salvation. Finally, chapter 11 begins, I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? Has God rejected the Jews? Now, again, if you expect his answer to be, of course not. They are still his chosen people. And someday, thousands of years in the future, he is going to bring the Jews into his kingdom. If that's your conclusion, you're not reading the Bible. Because that's not what he says. All right. With that as an overview, let's go back to chapter 9 and start looking through it here. Megan says, I'm learning so much from starting in the text and context. I am so glad to hear that. That's, that's going to change everything if you stick to the text. All right. So remember here we have a chapter break, chapter 9. It is not a chapter break in the original letter. Paul didn't put chapter breaks in. He's continuing the same line of thinking he has all the way along. But he does get personal here. He says, truth, I say in Christ, in the Messiah, truth, I speak. I do not lie. That's a, that's a personal statement and raises the question, why does he feel the need to emphasize that he is speaking truth and not lying. He says, my conscience bearing testimony with me in the Holy Spirit. Again, he's piling up these, um, uh, these sort of corroborations of his motives. I'm speaking truth. I'm not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit. Even the Holy Spirit is joining with my conscience to testify that I'm speaking truth and not lying. Well, what is it you're speaking truth about, Paul? That I have great grief and unceasing pain in my heart. 
He is, he is internally distraught at something. He is deeply grieving, mourning, and feeling the weight of some distress. Well, what is it? For I was wishing I myself to be accursed from the Christ or from the Messiah for my brothers, my relatives, according to flesh. Do you see the implication of this verse? The implication of this verse 3 is that his brothers, the Israelites, his relatives according to flesh, and there's no article in the original, by the way, so it's just the flesh, which you know what I think that means. What is, what is the implication that the his brothers, the Israelites, according to flesh, what is their relationship to Christ based on verse 3 here? Let me give you a moment. Somebody answer that. Based on verse 3, what's the implication? I was wishing I myself to be accursed from the Messiah for my brothers, my relatives, according to the flesh. What is Paul saying about his brothers, his relatives, according to the flesh? Do you see it? I'll give you a moment to respond. I know there's a, a little delay here on the YouTube and looks like all of uh, all the people who are commenting are on YouTube so far today. I don't see any Facebookers. And if you're on X, I, uh, sorry, I can't receive your comments here. Uh, Rob says, if anyone is still hung on the idea that flesh means sinful nature, verse three dispels the idea. Yeah, and I, I like that. I agree with you. I would say we always have to let the context determine, right? So it may be that, that flesh has a sinful nature, uh, somewhat of a connotation in some contexts. I, I wouldn't want to just universally say that can never be, but the context here would certainly go the other way. Uh, yeah, child of Elohim, very good. They are accursed. He said, basically, what Paul is saying is, I wish I, I would, I would take their place. If I could be accursed for them so that they wouldn't be accursed, I would do it. He loves these people. He says some strong things against them and in other letters, right? He does that as well. But he loves them and he is grieved that they are accursed. Anathema is the Greek word from the Messiah. They are cut off from the Messiah. And that causes Paul great internal turmoil. Okay, so he describes them as his brothers. So earlier he addressed the Jews as brothers in the second person. Now he's referring to them as brothers in the third person. Now he's speaking to the Roman Christians about the Jews, his brothers, according to flesh, uh, in third person. Dale says, and or they are only connected to Paul by birth, not spiritually, not, yeah, not, not through the gospel, right? Not through Christ. Uh, Child of Elohim says, I think flesh means bloodline, 
Maybe. Uh, but I don't think so. Actually, I... I uh, okay, you're, you're reading ahead and you're reading into it. Don't do that. Let's just follow the, follow the text here, child of Elohim. Patience. Patience, sister. <laughs> All right. So he describes the Israelites as his brothers, his relatives, according to flesh, who are Israelites, lest there's any confusion as to who he's talking about. And notice what he says about them. Whose is the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the law giving, the service, and the promises. The Jews should have been the ones who were adopted as sons. Now, uh, someone brought up this idea of adoption uh, earlier this week or last week. Uh, there's this, uh, this concept of you're not an heir and a son always in the first century merely by being born into a family. This word adoption, it doesn't occur in this way anywhere in the Old Testament. And uh, it's, it's not used a lot in the New, the new well, it's not, yeah, in the New Testament. Um, but the idea, I think, is the Jews, the Israelites should have been, in one sense, in, in the whole story as it's played out, it, they should have been the ones who received the adoption as the heirs of God's inheritance. And theirs is the glory. I mean, maybe the adoption is the fact, could be. Now, here's where I don't want to assume, but it's possible he just means uh, God chose them. Because if you remember, in Exodus, God does call Israel his firstborn son. But he chose, he, he makes a big deal of it. I chose you out of all the nations on the earth. I chose you to be my firstborn son. Well, that... That's more along the lines of adoption, isn't it? Uh, my son was conceived and birthed naturally. My son, Gabe. I didn't choose him. But if I adopt someone, then I choose that one to be in my family. So uh, probably that's the, uh, the essay idea here. The Israelites, God, God adopted them in that sense. And it would seem like they ought to get the inheritance. But of course... They don't. They reject Christ. And the glory. We've seen glory again and again and again in this context piled up with all these other temple and old covenant words. I suspect it's the glory that filled the temple or the tabernacle. Remember when the glory of the Lord would show up and lead the, the, the Israelites to go forward and then uh, settle down and set up camp for a while? I suspect that's the glory. God's glory that, that filled the temple uh, and the, uh, the tabernacle. Theirs is the covenants. Covenants with Abraham. The covenants with Moses, David. Those are all for the Israelites. Theirs is the law giving. God gave the law to the Israelites. He didn't give it to the Philistines or the Amorites or so on. The service. This is Latria. This is the temple service. And the promises, as we've been saying. They're all for the Israelites. Whose are the fathers? Probably the what we'd call the patriarchs, usually the Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And of whom is the Christ, the Messiah? He came from the Israelites, according to flesh. 
right? His, and again, this raises the question, is he using hum flesh as humanity here or is he using it as circumcision? I'm going to side with circumcision. It seems consistent with everything else we, that we've seen. Now notice this. He speaks of Christ, the Messiah, and look how he describes the Messiah. He is God over all, blessed into all the ages. Amen. Such a clear statement of the deity of Christ. Paul recognizes that Jesus, the Messiah, is God. And he's the God over all. And he is blessed into the ages, literally is what it says. Amen. May it be so. Based on verse 3, the Jews, Israelites, are accursed from the Messiah. They are cut off from the Messiah. The Messiah is the God who is over all. Israelites are cut off from God. Don't let anybody persuade you that we and Israel worship the same God. We do not. I don't use the phrase Judeo-Christian ethic anymore or Judeo-Christian heritage anymore because the Jews reject my God, the God who is over all. They reject him. We do not serve the same God. We do not worship him. We don't know him. They are cut off from the one true God. So with all the stuff going on in our world today, don't let your mind be persuaded that the Jews worship Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament. They don't. Because Christ is God and they reject him. So he holds them in high esteem. and That's not even the way to say it. He recounts the great promises and blessings that the Jews have based on their scripture. Again, you read Exodus through Malachi and you see all these promises and blessings and hopes for Israel, and yet they are cut off from the Messiah. And he says, but it is not as though, again, this is not a great translation by the LSV here. It is not as though the word of God has failed. Now feel the weight of that. If you just read the Old Testament, and especially the prophets, and maybe something like you know, Deuteronomy, you get the, the blessings promised as part of the covenant. If you just if you read those again and again and again, and then you find out that the Israelites are not recipients of the consummation of all that God is doing. You can see how someone would conclude that God has failed to keep his word. So Paul is going to address that 
And it starts with this concept right here. For not all who are of Israel are these of Israel. Now, that's an awkward statement in the English. It's the same awkwardness in the Greek. But if you get it, it's, it, it makes perfect sense. Not all. How, how is it that God is not a promise breaker if Israel is cut off from the Messiah? How can we say, how can you say, Paul, he didn't fail to keep his word? Because not all who are of Israel... These are of Israel. Or say it this way, to be woodenly literal. <laughs> All who are of Israel are Israel. Not that. <laughs> okay? Take this phrase. All who are of Israel, these are Israel. Not that, Paul says. Not that. That statement, that is not true. All who are Israel are Israel. No, Paul says that is not true. That is a fascinating thing to say, isn't it? Wait, there are people of Israel who are not Israel? Huh. What do you mean? Well, he will answer that question in the upcoming verses, which we will take a look at next week. Uh, let me see, catch up on a couple of your comments here. Uh, Dale says... Jews and Christians share some values, but so does basically everyone. There's no real connection. Yep. Uh, seems like more of an anthropological category. Yeah. And there, I think, you know, what most people mean by Judeo-Christian is we have a, a derived moral standard from the scripture. But I, I think it sends... A message we don't want to uh, to send. Wesley says the anguish that Paul expresses in verses one and two. How much of that has in mind the judgment that is coming in seventy A.D.? Uh, probably some, because I think we'll see some hints of that in chapter eleven. Um, but I would say it equally. He knows, like from chapter two what is awaiting all of those who do not persevere in righteousness, and that is the wrath that's coming uh, on the day of judgment, which I do not take as 70 AD. You may, based on your question, I wonder if you do, but I don't. I don't. Um, <laughs> you guys are having a hard time not jumping ahead. That's all right. But that would suggest that being joined to true Israel holds significance in Paul's mind. Uh, what's that referring to, Westminster Derrick? That would suggest that being joined to true Israel, not sure uh, what you're responding to there. All right. Um, read ahead. Read 9, 10, 11. I, as I've said to you repeatedly, 
if you go over and over and over again, the big sections, things start to jump out at you. So if you really want to understand this portion, read chapters 9, 10, 11, again and again and again, read them in different translations, listen to them when you're out walking, whatever, get the get it all in your head. So that as we go through, uh, it will, it will make sense to you. All right, we'll be back on Monday to talk uh, more Romans tomorrow. Gentlemen, come back. We'll have Fridays with the fellows with my son, Gabe. Have a great day. Take care.